0: Yo, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I always find it inspiring to meet people who are living in alignment with their mission or their values. They just seem to squeeze a lot more out of life. My guest this week is definitely one of those people. His mission to revitalize his hometown of Flint, Michigan, and to improve the medical profession have made him the owner of several restaurants in downtown Flint and a board member for the American Medical Association. We start the podcast by talking about growing up in Flint, Michigan, during a time where brown people were not as common, and how sometimes the ways that your skin color or your race affected your experience is much more clear in retrospect. We also talk about his collection of 73 cars. One of them, well... I'll, I'll let you hear about it, but it's, it's not exactly a car. And lastly, something that was really exciting for me to hear about was his take on parenting as a second-generation immigrant with twin boys. He talks about how it deferred from his own parenting growing up. I'm going to cut the build-up here. Without further ado, Bobby Mukamala, welcome to Brown People We Know so i've been super excited for this interview i think we chatted about this but you're one of the few indian adults i know that are basically the same generation as me right like your parents were the ones to come here you speak dalgu your kids don't i speak dalgu i hope my kids will but no guarantees
1: a lot depends on who you marry
0: so i wanted to start with something pretty specific Outside of a few high school friends that call you Srini, short for Srini most people, including your parents and your wife, call you Bobby. So what's the story behind that name?
1: So the way my parents tell me that came to be, because obviously I get that question a lot. So they moved to this country in 1970. I was born in 71, and they were both medical residents. And so they had uh, their, their usual medical resident schedule, newborn son. And so they had some help at the home, like a nanny sort of, uh, for the day when they were working until one of them got home. And she was, uh, an elderly black woman in Flint, Michigan, uh, who never heard the name Srinivas, let alone wanted to attempt pronouncing it. And in Telugu, as you probably know, the term of endearment for little boy is Babu, right? So Babu come here, Babu do this, you know, oh, good job, Babu. My parents would say Babu and, and she sort of quickly found the English analog of Babu, and it became Bobby. And so it was, you know, oh, Bobby did this, Bobby did that today. And her reporting always sort of included Bobby referring to me. So my parents figured, okay, well, that's the English version of Babu, and so we'll call him Bobby. And so it was like that all the way through childhood. They still call me Bobby, except after graduation from eighth grade, so this next step going to high school, they thought that it was time to be more ethnic, and it started, I remember picture day in eighth grade, they decided that I should wear an Indian kurta instead of the usual sort of shirt and tie that I was wearing for the previous seven class photos. And I was just irritated. I was there's like, there's no way I'm going to wear this. But in eighth grade, I didn't have the wherewithal to uh, rebel. I wasn't, I, and I and never really gained it, but certainly I didn't have it in eighth grade. They forced me to wear a kurta for my class pictures and enrolled me in high school as Srini Vas that I sort of abbreviated into Srini as a nickname. And so it stuck for four years in high school. But then as soon as I graduated high school and was out of the house in freshman year at University of Michigan, on my own in a dorm with nobody to tell me what I could and couldn't do, I introduced myself to everybody as Bobby. And that's what I had always been except for those four years. And then soon after got my ear pierced and grew my hair out, and that was my rebellion. Uh, so I went back to Bobby, plus an earring and long hair. <laughs> That's hilarious. I at one time had my
0: ear pierced as well. <laughs> I never got <laughs> to the long
1: hair. Yeah, it was more of a mullet,
0: but it was cool at the time. Yeah, I was gonna say fits the times. I imagine in your high school, you were probably the only kid at the time wearing a Kurta in the yearbook. I know that the city of Flint has fully embraced you today, and, and we'll talk about that, but. Growing up, did you feel like your being Indian or your being brown-skinned made you stand out? And maybe you can talk about the threats that your parents received when they were selling the house. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm more aware of what those experiences meant when I'm at this age looking back at them, but at the time didn't think much of them. So, I mean, I remember in elementary school being called Brownie and you know, not thinking of it as anything more than being called a jerk, right? Like it wasn't a racially motivated thing, it seemed. It was just more of an insult, like just calling somebody a, a four-letter word. And now looking back on it, it was pretty clear that I was the only brown-skinned kid in the class and, and that there, it was clearly racially based and not anything else. And so now I'm more aware of those things and growing up that way. But it never bothered me as a kid. And, and maybe it's because I wasn't woke at the age of, you know, 15 or 16. But there were, you know, there were things like that, being the only non-white kid. Maybe there were a couple uh, black kids in my class, but nobody else other than us. And, you know, again, looking back on it, certain events, um, like the one you mentioned, when we sold our house in Grand Blanc, Michigan in 1987, uh, when my parents moved from one neighborhood in Grand Blanc to another neighborhood, we sold it to the first black family in the neighborhood. You know, at the time, I didn't know this, but my dad told me a couple of years later that, that we got death threats anonymously, obviously, from uh, from neighbors up and down the street, more than one, saying, you know, how how dare you move on to a nicer neighborhood and sell your house irresponsibly to a black family and negatively affect our property values. And that's probably putting it politely. I think the language of the letter was much more vehement and uh, and visceral and angry than that. But that was the gist of it. Like, you've ruined our neighborhood by selling to a black family. How dare you? Um, and, and death threats associated with it. To the point that my dad had to call the sheriff's office and uh, and report it. And, you know, they created a report and said, you know, they monitored the house for a few days, that sort of thing, in case somebody was going to make good on the threat. And I use that example in some of the talks that I give about the racial history of of our community and the kind of work we're doing to move forward from that point, kind of evolve from that point. And, and I and I raised that point just to illustrate that, you know, growing up, I thought that racism ended with Martin Luther King Jr.'s successes. Um, and it was something that ended when the whites only blacks enter through the back signs went down. But I was clearly, again, naive, and it didn't end there. And we still sort of suffer from it. And just kind of looking at current events, there's a lot of things that you could point to that it's the legacy of that same racism that's just sort of changed how it's expressed. So that's why I draw on those examples just to sort of illustrate that. This is interesting because
0: you're Indian and you're living in this neighborhood, and it seems like there was a level of peace with your neighbors. Did you feel like there was a big difference in being Indian and being black at the time in Flint?
1: Yeah, at, at the time, no, but now clearly just from asking questions about what it was like at the time. So we have another very senior physician used to be chief of staff at our hospital doctor that is a black gentleman that went to a black medical college and then moved to Flint because at the time in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a physician shortage period, and you just couldn't find people to work in places like Flint, Michigan. And that's why they were so open to international medical graduates and Black medical graduates. But the difference was when that Black physician tried to move into the same town that my parents moved into, there was no way that was going to happen, right? His The realtors wouldn't even show him the homes. And so he ended up living in Flint, which is traditionally sort of where the Black community resided. But yet my parents didn't have the same issue. So there was clearly a difference in perception of brown versus black when it comes to how willing the community was to accept it. And to your point,
0: it sounds like there's been a lot of evolution. I know that you were born in Pittsburgh, but more or less grew up in Flint in the area. You're a well-known community figure now. In fact, you've given the commencement speech at UM Flint. Yeah. So how would you describe your relationship to Flint today and how does it compare to your relationship with India do both places feel like home to you or are they very different places in your mind
1: I would say very different Clearly, I have an emotional attachment to India uh, just because growing up, my mom's parents, uh, we were close to, my dad's parents had had passed early on, and so I didn't really get to know them. But pretty much every summer, because my parents still had that attachment, you know, being 25 and moving to this country and not really knowing anybody, every opportunity they had and whenever they could get the resources together to get four plane tickets for my sister and me and, and for my folks, we would go to India. And so I did have that attachment, but you know, my, my Telugu is very chopped. It's as soon as I open my mouth, it's painfully obvious that I'm not local. And you know, of course I learned all the bad words first and out of necessity to speak to my grandma who didn't speak any English picked up as much Telugu as I could, um, just to have good conversations with her. But it was, but I never knowing that even when I visited there, it was obvious that I wasn't from there. That I definitely identified more with growing up, being born and raised in the United States and, and in Flint. So I always felt like a tourist in India and a native to Flint. And even, even now that I realize sort of some of the racist things that I observed early on, I never felt like an outsider here. right? And growing up, I was naive to it. And I, as I mentioned, wasn't aware of it. But then coming back as a physician, immediately you have some street cred you know, when you have a professional degree and you're seeing patients and then, you know, getting involved in the community in various aspects, being on different boards, interacting with people, giving speeches. I just felt very welcomed and therefore never felt like an outsider in this town. They've embraced me and I've embraced them after coming back from training. And so a very uh, nice
0: experience here. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting to me that, You are in Flint because when I think of someone ambitious, they tend to be in the bigger cities. Even for me, completing my MBA, I'm basically given the option of cities like New York or Seattle. Having done your residency in Chicago and frequenting D.C. for the AMA, do you think you would be less happy living in a bigger city? Why Flint?
1: Yeah. I mean, the way that that decision was made. So I did my residency in Chicago. So five years there. And at the end of residency, we were going to have the twins. So Nikhil and Devin were going to be born. Actually, they were born the last month of my residency. So part of it was just the practical decision of here we are a two physician couple Nita's as an OBGYN with newborn twin boys and managing that, that wouldn't it be great to be closer to grandparents? My in-laws live in Michigan. My folks live in Michigan. From practical consideration, it was a logical thing to do. But then the other part of it was, you know, I wanted to be in private practice and I didn't want to work for somebody else. And setting up a private practice in a big city is just more difficult, right? The market's more saturated. The need isn't quite there. It's just harder to do that. So I thought, well, if I want to do that, I might as well go where I know people. You know, we know a lot of physicians in the community. I knew that I could start on day one and not be sitting around waiting for patients to come. I mean... On day one, I had five patients. So it's not like I was super busy, but I wasn't zero. And so that, that was the other sort of more practical reason to come is starting a medical practice, private practice, easier to do where you are a known entity than where there's a lot of competition and you're unknown. Um, and then the final thing is, I, I guess I like uh, suburban living. I think it's just more comfortable raising kids. I'm sort of a handyman. I like to tinker. I need my tools. I need my tool shed you know, I've I've come to accumulate quite a few cars. I wouldn't have the car collection I had if I had to pay for parking in a city like Chicago. So in hindsight, it's worked out wonderfully. But yeah, those were the main reasons we ended up coming back to Flint.
0: You're on the board of the AMA and you've gone to D.C. to speak about surprise medical bills to Congress. You've also, within the community of Flint, invested in restaurants to spur economic growth. You've handed out 3D printers at the school because Nikhil has found those useful. What is your motivation for giving back? And do you think that your motivation changes when you're giving broadly versus when you're giving back to the community of Flint?
1: The motivation really comes from just gratitude. You know, my parents came here again when they were 25. They weren't well to do, but they had, you know, they each had a job contract when they got here. That was about it. And I mean, I remember my mom would buy my clothes at the local pharmacy, right? I mean, it was it was that sort of frugal living. Uh, I mean, that was, you know, partly to do with their personality, but partly because they were, you know, they weren't used to having that sort of wealth and, and hadn't accumulated that kind of wealth yet. And so looking back on it, I had a lot of gratitude for this town welcoming them in the way that they did. And I didn't want to do only what they did. Right. So make a living for myself, provide for my family. I thought that there was probably uh, that I was responsible to do more than just that. Right. That I should take it another step. And that other step was then giving back in one way or the other. You know, whether that's supporting the arts by writing a check or whether that's tutoring kids, high school kids that are preparing for college admissions or, you know, the kind of things you mentioned, like teaching kids how to use 3D printers, all things that I enjoy doing. But if I'm going to learn about 3D printers, it always seemed logical that I should also teach so that it doesn't end with me. So when the kids were getting ready to apply to college and I, and I was helping them prepare for the ACT, you know, I, I, you know, reviewed and learned and, and pretty much was getting great scores. If I had gotten the scores in high school that I'm getting now on the ACT, you know, maybe I would have gone somewhere else to college. But the point was that I've accumulated this knowledge and didn't want it to just end with the reason I accumulated it, which is to help my kids, but instead to give back to the community. And so it's just, I guess, all motivated by a sense of gratitude and wanting to give back in exchange for what we were given as an immigrant family. And then also just to, again, that, that pay it forward mentality and to leave it better than I found it.
0: And when you do things like testify to Congress about surprise medical bills, when you do things like that, does that come from a different place? Is that more career aspirational?
1: I mean, no, it's, it's a similar thing in gratitude in the same way that my community, my, the, my hometown of Flint has given us a lot, in the same way the profession has given us a lot, right? Were it not for my parents' ability to come here as newly graduated physicians, And get a job contract and provide for the family and make a living. Medicine has given us a lot. And so I didn't want to also just do what they did, but instead go a step further. So do something to improve the medical care in this country and realized quickly that my own individual effort in that regard is a drop in the ocean, right? Like I could do everything right in my office and say all the right things to my small group of of friends and fellow physicians locally. But if I really wanted to try to improve medicine, improve the care of the patients in this country, that it needed to be done more organized. And that's through Genesee County Medical Society, the Michigan State Medical Society, and the American Medical Association. Those are the avenues uh, by which I can express my desire to improve medicine. And so once I realized that, I started to get involved and served as the county medical society president, currently serving as the uh, state medical society president, and then as chair elect of the board of the American Medical Association. Because that's the way to improve medicine in in the same way that serving on community boards here in Flint is the way to improve our Flint community. It's a way for you to have a
0: larger scale impact, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And immigrant or not, I think a lot of people discuss success in terms of financial wealth. We discussed your career ambitions a little bit, but you mentioned spending time with Nikhil and Devin, learning about the ACT and volunteering. You mentioned your collection of cars, <laughs> which I think you've amassed well over 60 cars at this point. 73, yep. <laughs> Is it true that there's a fire truck in that collection?
1: Yeah, every now and then I... uh there's an impulse buy. and so when I saw this fire truck on Craigslist just a couple of towns over, I thought, well, that would be kind of cool for parades and whatnot and A week later, there's a fire truck sitting in my garage, and I'm wondering what the heck did I do? but uh, it makes for a good conversation piece,
0: well, like you say, cars come in, they don't go out right
1: you're right exactly,
0: so kind of thinking about these different career ambitions and the way that you're giving back and and these other hobbies that you have, I'm curious a what success means to you, but also. I'm sure that you have many opportunities coming your way. So how do you decide what to put your time and your money into?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as success, people decide what they want to do and then and they land in various places. So I, I, you know, could have as an otolaryngologist early on in my, or late in my training early on in my career, I thought you know, I want to be a a head and neck cancer surgeon. I I enjoyed it immensely as, as in training, and I thought I was going to go down the academic route and follow in the steps of my mentors and become a head and neck surgeon and do this amazing reconstructive and curative cancer surgery in the head and neck. And that's a path that would have led to a university position, a faculty position, and essentially that would have occupied all of my time, right? I mean, that's those surgeries are you know, 15 hour procedures back when we were doing them. And there's not much time to do anything else if that's the path you choose. I realized early on that I wanted to do something else than that. I wanted to provide good care for my patients, but I didn't want that to be what defined me in total. And so then it became an issue of, okay, well, what else am I passionate about? And, you know, I mentioned the profession of medicine uh, and I mentioned sort of my hometown. I started to split my time between those things and pursue those things. Now, as far as deciding what to spend my time and and money on, it's absolutely true that you get to a certain point in your career. And when you have some wealth put away every month, somebody pitches you with something, right? And early on, I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. Why don't I invest in real estate in Arizona, you know, outside of Las Vegas, because that sounds good. And it seems like it should be a good idea. And so after doing that for, Close to 10 years, I realized that that was not one bringing me happiness, it was bringing me stress, you know, managing these things. And two, there was no principle to that investment, right? It was all just, you know, it sounded good, let me just do that. Then the opportunity came to invest in Flint. Somebody said, We would like to revitalize downtown. We've got some space. We've been looking for a restaurant tenant but nobody's come forward. What do you think about joining with us? And we will open our own restaurant to sort of prove the concept that Flint downtown is ready for this sort of development. So, you know, we open our first restaurant. And then a neighbor of mine that was um, catering out of her home wanted to open her own restaurant. She's always wanted a brick and mortar space for that work. And so she asked me about helping her open her restaurant. So restaurant number two, open. And then my neighbor on the other side of me who had a crepe cart wanted another, you know, a location, another brick and mortar place for the Flint Crepe Company. And so the Flint Crepe Company opened. And so, you know, one became two, two became three. And now I find myself an owner of, of half a dozen restaurants, a brewery, a hard cider place, a clothing store, a clothing brand, all part of the revitalization. But I said yes to those things because they all fit the mission of revitalization and improving Flint. So now when somebody says, hey, I've got an interesting investment opportunity in Seattle, Washington, would you be interested? I can comfortably say no and not be tempted because it doesn't fit with the mission. Putting money and resources and time to the mission of improving my hometown.
0: It sounds like the revitalization of Flint or maybe your children's educations in terms of 3D printing and ACT, they're acting as filters for the opportunities
1: that you take on. Absolutely. I mean, time, time is obviously limited. It is the most precious resource for me now doing the various things that I'm doing. And it's nice to be able to use that filter to say yes or no. And I support plenty of other things. I mean, it's almost easier now to write a check to support somebody else's activity that I don't necessarily have a passion or expertise in, but it's certainly worthwhile. Uh, And then other things to actually put time into. Education is something that I'm learning a lot about uh, the Flint community suffers just like a lot of inner-city communities with uh, with a problem with public education. and so I've spent a lot of time talking to people trying to develop knowledge about public education and policies associated with public education just so that you know I can participate in constructive conversations about how to get us out of our current situation, which is failing our city kids in public schools. It seems like a lot of times when
0: people have such multifaceted careers or they're involved in so many things. They have a very intense personality, (laughs) whereas you seem very relaxed. And would you say that's true? And is that something that you've always had or has it developed over time?
1: Uh, I would definitely say I haven't always had it. And if you were interviewing some of my family members, they would let you know for sure that I haven't always had it, but I'm moving in that direction. Um, And that's not by accident I grew up and I went to Catholic school my entire life, pretty much, you know, from grade school all the way through high school, going to Catholic mass Monday through Friday for a decade or more, and then Sundays going to Indian Sunday school, right, and studying Vedanta from the very basic sort of comic book style Vedanta to philosophical writings of Swami Chinmayananda in in the Chinmay Mission teaching. Now I realize that I'm, I'm embracing some of the things I learned in Vedanta about You know, living in the present moment, not dwelling on the past and not stressing about the future, right? So try to make the best decisions today and then move on, right? If they work out well, great. If they don't, too bad and learn from it and and do something different tomorrow. But it is a very peaceful way to live. And I think it allows me to be involved in a lot of things and, and still sleep very soundly every night and wake up refreshed in the morning is, is just a matter of perspective. Not dependent on the outcomes of the things that I'm involved in externally, but just more what's going on between my ears. Yeah. I want to
0: shift gears a little bit and focus on your family. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I often think about or that I've heard is that the way that our parents parent us affects the way that we parent. (laughs) Did your parents have a heavy influence in how you're parenting the twins? and What have you kept and what have you changed from the way that you were parented?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my gut reaction would be that I am parenting in a very different way. I guess th- the problem is that I see all of the things I didn't like about how I was raised, and I intentionally try to do things differently. But I guess I haven't spent, and this is you know my fault, a lot of time looking back on seeing all the things that did go well and, and were done correctly in, in raising me by my folks. Um, and, and obviously... They did a good job, I think, I would humbly say. But what am I doing different? So, I mean, things that I would point out as differences, when I was growing up, I remember, and I'll just sort of illustrate this with a story, I think junior year in high school, maybe beginning of senior year, I told my parents that I wanted to be a journalist. And they, you know, the blank hit the fan, you know, I mean, there was, there, there was no way that that was going to happen. My parents are both physicians. They saw it as the tested, tried and true way to success in this country, Medicine was good for them. Why the heck would I want to do anything else other than medicine when there's a guaranteed outcome associated with going to medical school? And basically, I was grounded and, and not allowed to leave the house until I changed my mind. <laughs> Obviously, I have a very different perspective on that now that I'm in the other side and I'm the parent and Nikhil and Devin, when they expressed sort of their interests and neither one is going to medical school. It sounds like. I mean, I think there's a very out, yeah, a very unlikely outcome that they would be in medical school. One wants to maybe go to law school, maybe go to Cambridge and study philosophy. Not quite sure where that career path will end. And then Nikhil studying bioengineering. You know, it's remotely related to healthcare, and that you know he wants to help people, but help them by the thousands and tens of thousands, as opposed to individually. But yes, clearly not down a, a medical path. And and I was totally fine with that. One it sure does diversify the dinner table conversation because my wife is a physician my sister is a physician my parents are physicians it sure would be nice to be able to talk about something other than medical topics around the dinner table and so that's nice and also you know i mean i see as i look around me that there are so many paths to success and happiness an infinite number of paths one of which is healthcare you know and so why Limit my children in their pursuit of happiness to doing something that, of course, has made me happy. And I have no regrets. I mean, I I wouldn't change a thing. And I've sort of leveraged my medical career in the ways that you've described already. But I know that they could easily find happiness, enormous happiness, doing many other things and let them do that. One similarity, though, is realizing that academic success is important to me to see in my kids to make sure that their options are open. I did exactly what my parents did and that I made sure that all the homework was done before they could do anything. And if the grades dropped, immediately activities were getting cut, you know, that they needed to prepare for college applications and, and took that very seriously. And that is a stark contrast to a lot of my also American-born, but Western-raised colleagues, that when I'm tutoring their kids for the ACT, and then it comes time to apply, and I ask the parents, have they opened their Common App yet? Have they uploaded their colleges? Have they looked at the essay prompts? And so here we are at the end of September, and my kids' essays, the first draft was already done by now, and these other kids haven't even uploaded the colleges to the Common App yet. So in that sense, I'm very much like my parents in that making sure that academics takes a priority. And and again, I could easily step back and say, you know what? There are plenty of people that never went to college, that didn't pursue this academic path, that have enormous happiness. And I realized that, but it wasn't a chance I was willing to take. So I'm not so woke that I would say, guys, you can go to college if you want. Don't go to college if you don't want. I know you'll be happy in the end, which is true, but I wasn't uh, that
0: bold. One of the other stark contrasts that I see between, let's say, like Western, Eastern raised people is, is the relationship with the kid. Are you your kid's friend? Are you more of a guide? Are you there as support financially? Yeah. How would you describe your relationship with the twins? Yeah,
1: no, it's a, it's a, a great question and one that I've sort of thought about, just that concept. So I mean, my, my parents, uh, particularly my dad, I mean, like you said, was very much a disciplinarian. Right. I mean, their role was to make sure I was on the right track. I don't remember many endearing moments in childhood. Right, I mean, it was just it was their role to keep me on track and make sure I made the right choices and that sort of thing. But not a whole lot of affection. And I think that's just because of the way my parents were raised. You know, they were raised in India, obviously. And I just don't think that that was expressed like that. And maybe it was my family and maybe it was. The culture in, in Andhra Pradesh, or maybe it was all of India. But I suspect it was more than just my parents' households growing up that sort of made them more sort of the disciplinarians as opposed to the emotional support of their children. But, you know, I grew up in this country and I see myself, and my, my kids may have a different answer. They might only see me as a disciplinarian also, and maybe I have a selective memory. But I, I remember it being. It's just a much more affectionate, I think, supporting relationship now between me as a father and and my two sons than my father's relationship with me.
0: You mentioned going to Indian Sunday School. Obviously, retaining Indian culture was really important to your parents. Mm -hmm. Do you find that it's as important to you? And are there any, let's say, languages, foods, cultural artifacts that you hope that your children
1: will retain? I realize the inevitability of dilution of that culture from one generation to the next. And so whether it's from my generation to my kid's generation or three steps down the, the road there, eventually we will lose it. It's just inevitable because we, will, we are so far removed from India. I mean, all it takes is them marrying somebody that doesn't have Indian heritage. And it's a, a huge decrease in the continuation of that. So realizing that and despite that, I still want them to be aware, right? I mean, they will always look different. Their kids will likely look different than their white uh, American peers. And that will require explanation. And I didn't want them to not be able to answer those questions intelligently. What do you guys believe in? What is Hinduism? Why do you have so many gods? Why, why is Kali, why does she have a trident? Why is she decapitating somebody? Like, what's up with that? How is that religious? How is that holy? I didn't want them to be ignorant of the answers to those questions. And so for that reason, I took them to Sunday school. You know, the same Sunday school that I went to, I became a teacher in and I taught students. And they went all the way through maybe sophomore year in high school. And then they got to the age where teenage rebellion kicks in and they're like, Forget that, Dad. I've got ACT to study for, I've got classes, I've got AP exams. I'm not going to waste two hours at Sunday school on. on two. And at that point, you know I wasn't going to force them because you know when you force kids when they're in that state of mind, all it does is it creates a division and a communication barrier that just perpetuates for years to come. And so you know I, I talked to some senior advisors you know in my parents' generation and I said, you know what, what do you think I should do? And they said, you know, eventually they may find their way back. And I was the exact same way. I went reluctantly. I didn't go willingly to learn about Vedanta. And I was forced to. And and when my parents made me chant Bhajans, I just, you know, apparently I had a pretty good voice and they forced me to use it. But I hated every second of it. I didn't know the translation of what I was singing. I thought how idiotic it is that I'm singing in a language. I don't even know what the words mean. Uh, but now I've come around, as, as we've mentioned before. That I think uh, a knowledge of Vedanta, I appreciate and, uh, embrace a lot of what Vedanta teaches about the, you know, the nature of happiness and its truest form and that sort of thing. And, and what the advice I got as it relates to my kids is that my kids might eventually come around and when they are looking for meaning, because of what i've exposed them to they will look at eastern religion and hinduism and vedanta and maybe find the meaning they're looking for in that and maybe they won't but at least because of the exposure that i gave them just like i was exposed to when i was a kid they will at least look that way for that explanation when the time comes yeah and to your point about your spouse
0: my parents and i imagine many indian american parents have often suggested that you look for an indian spouse specifically because of the shared cultural background I personally think you and Nita are adorable. I mean, you share an office. (laughs) You know, that's a big deal. How much of your compatibility do you think stems from a shared cultural
1: background? I think more of it comes from our pursuit for ourselves of academic excellence and the profession we've chosen and service to people and community mindedness none of which has anything to do with our brown skin or our Indianness, right? And so I think that's, in fact, Nita will tell the story if she was here, that she went to college and she essentially told her parents there was no way in hell she was going to marry an Indian kid, right? I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. And lo and behold, fast forward, you know, we ended up getting married and, and the rest is history. So it wasn't our Indian-ness that sort of was the similarity that drew, drew us together. It was, it, it was despite my Indian-ness that we ended up together. And so it's you know it's just interesting how that developed. I'll be sure to make sure my parents hear that. <laughs> no, just kidding.
0: But I really appreciate you being on, Bobby. This was, like I said, super cool. It's it's almost like looking into my future.
1: A little <laughs> bit. So thanks for coming on. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I enjoyed it. And you know, there's not a there's not enough time in life to pause and be introspective. So I, I enjoy these moments. But thanks for uh, thanks for walking me down memory lane. Of course.